fantastic to be here. Um, I can't help but thinking how encouraged I am to see you at the piano. It reminds me of our, sometimes we used to spend, Malcolm, as, as you know, used to lead the church in, in Manchester when my wife and I were up there together. And um, there would be times when he'd be playing the piano, we'd be singing along together to see you at the keyboards again, singing Lord Rain in Me and all the songs that were done today. Danny, great job. And Leon, great job. Fantastic. And to, to see everybody, you know, just giving their hearts. I was so emotional. I was like, oh, yes, this is awesome. I love when Danny points his fingers and gets into it. This is fantastic. You know, uh, I've never been to Watford before to be a part of the church. And I just want to say, you are an enthusiastic group. And I'm so excited to be here with you. I came to Watford. I, I, this is hopefully, and it will do, I'm sure, change my perspective of Watford. Because, because... I went, I had two weeks in Watford back in 1980, uh, when was it, 87. In 1987, I spent two weeks in Watford going through training. But I used to work in Hemel Hampstead for a few years. And uh, the company... <laughs> well, in Hemel Hampstead, where I used to work, I used to work for an electronics company, and uh, they had their training. Uh, uh, their, their, it was a, a company called Crossfield Electronics. And anybody lived in Lockford more than 30 years? You might have remembered it. No? Uh, you do? You remember Crossfield? I don't know where their, their technical department was. Um, I'm just trying to log into this. Um, my, let's make sure I can get into my computer. That'd be helpful. Yes, I'm in. Um, but it was like a desert. And every day I went to this, they made scanners. And I had to learn the, the ropes of the scanning procedures in order to be in the business development department trying to market these things and sell them around the world. And it was a horrible experience, I must say. There was nothing to eat. There was no restaurants. It was just, just this industrial estate. And I was like, every day I had to kind of wander through ages of dual carriageways to end up in some civilization to buy some food to bring it back to the office. And it was not a good view. But Thank God for today. It's changed my whole view of Watford. And, you know, it's exciting. If you want to turn your Bibles, please, to, to the book of Mark, Mark chapter 5. We're going to talk a little bit um, from here this morning and into the afternoon, maybe. Um, you know, some of you know that I work for a charity that the church started a few years ago called Hope Worldwide, and I'm, I'm very grateful to, to be a part of that. It wasn't in my plan, should we say, but God had better plans. And I know, you know, Barry is a trustee, and I know Joe was a passionate supporter of the ODAT Challenge, Joe, which we're doing in less than three weeks today. Um, and uh, we went on a training um, run in Richmond Park yesterday for about uh, two and a half, three hours, running up and down hills, doing shuttle runs. Up, it's, it's, you know, it was fun. Uh, and... Uh, and, and a few weeks ago, we were in the North Downs doing 17, 18 miles of running up and down mountains, just training for this event. And you know what? I love it. And you, I have to thank, because I think you were the one who helped set it up. So um, thank you, Joe. I really appreciate that. That, that is part of my job. <laughs> my, a lot of you might know, but um, I'm also... Eva? Maling I didn't... Oh, my gosh! To me, by surprise. Eva Malingua's... A Mancunian, ex-Mancunian, but uh, now here as well. Thank you, God, for all these connections. But, um, you know, I love the mountains. I love the outdoors. I'm passionate about hills. 
And, you know, Jesus was too. Uh, and uh, what we're going to read today is, I think, not so much of Jesus on the mountainside experience, but Jesus is everything. He is everything. I love the song we just sung a while ago. Oh, you know, Lord, reign in me, you know, reign in your hearts oh, with a word. You, you know, the, a few songs ago, it wasn't just Lord, reign in me. It was about with a word you um, spoke. Oh, fed the hungry with still with a every star and every planet was fashioned by your hand in a shout you rose victorious reigning victory from the grave you know it's like wow you know Christianity can become a little bit okay it's Sunday it's Watford no it's not it's you know your the God's spirit is here God's spirit is powerful. God's spirit reigns. He creates. He's powerful. He's victorious. And this passage we're going to read is about the passion, the power, the victory over anything that comes his way that Jesus once again demonstrates um, uh, through the eyes of Mark, uh, via Peter, no doubt. Pick it up in verse 1. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit came from the tombs to meet him. The man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been chained, hand and foot. But he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. What an awful picture. What a tragedy. What a shocking image of a human being. A man who is isolated, living in tombs, who has been and spent the night in a cemetery? I've never done it, but I've come close. Between the house that I used to live at in Cholton in Manchester and Malcolm's house, there was a some southern cemetery, and some groups of brothers and I, we used to live in the cemetery to go and pray at night. And one night, somebody had the bright idea, let's all go into the cemetery. It's all locked. Climb over the fence and go and pray in the cemetery. You know, and there was like six of us. And I thought, yeah, it'd be good, all six together. And then we said, let's split up. I thought, no! You know, it was scary to be in the cemetery on your own at night. This guy lived in a scary world. Yeah. Not only that, he was naked. He was cutting himself with stones. You know, it has a little bit of a, 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 a you know, maybe remember 1 Kings 18 when, when Elijah was on the Mount Carmel and, and the, the prophets of Baal cut themselves with swords as was their custom for demon worship. Maybe this is the demonic side of worship with cutting himself with stones. But can you imagine the impact? The scabs, the pus, the infection. Can you imagine the pain, the misery? of this man. In the Luke account, in Luke 8, he said he was guarded by men. But his power was supernatural. He broke the chains, ran away from the men, and lived in this awful subhuman state. I read this, and I, I'm reminded of some of the people I work with. Now, this is about demon possession. This is not about mental health. This is 
fundamentally different. But having said that, it does have some characteristics, I think, of people who are in serious addiction to sin. Whether or not this is metaphorical or physical. You know, I work with guys, where, this has been a funny week. On Thursday, we had a graduation, and on the same day, we had to kick somebody out. I can maybe go into robot in a little bit more detail. But the guy we kicked out, <laughs> he, in one moment, he would be lucid and clear-minded and, 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 and really able to function. In the next moment, he would be shouting and screaming and picking up things and, 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 and crying and literally like, are you out of your mind? You know, people are complex. There's no kind of one size fits all. All of us are complex. All of us have issues. But some people's issues are a little bit more obvious than others. You know, this man had huge issues in his life. I don't know how he got to be in demon possession, but we know he was in a place of torment. He was in a place of torment. You know, Jesus, though, intervenes. The interesting thing about this is that every single technique that these people had at their disposal to try and give him a cure didn't work. Nothing worked. Everything they tried was redundant. Isn't that so much like so many people's lives? We try to sort the problem out, but we're dealing with the wrong problem. We're dealing with the symptoms, not the cause. You know, with this guy, they tried to deal with the symptoms, chaining him. Hand and foot. Guarding him. But what did he do? He broke it. He smashed it. He ran away. And if you read the Matthew account in Matthew 8, there was probably two men. Maybe there was a community. Mark and Luke talk about one because maybe he was more prominent, more, in, more the, the main character of the story. But you know, sometimes when people have abusive tendencies, they partner up with other people who have abusive tendencies. You know... This man was sick. How are we doing today? You know, are there things on the outside which other people are trying to manage? Or do you see other people and you look at the symptoms and you don't understand how to deal with the cause of the problem? Do you see that teenager who is really reckless and violent and wants to do crazy things? You think, why are they doing that? Why are they seeking that next thrill? Maybe there's something inside that's not being dealt with. You know, when I was a teen, when I, I lived in Jamaica up until I was 16, and I, the neighborhood I lived in was beautiful, open, transparent, front doors open, secure, um, big houses, big gardens. For a lot of my friends had motorbikes. I remember borrowing one of my friends' motorbikes one day and racing another friend on a motorbike down the road at top speed, in about, probably about 45 to 50 miles an hour. And all I had on was a t-shirt and shorts. No shoes, no helmet, nothing. And that's not bad enough. There was an intersection 
where, not, you know, it's just a, a suburban neighborhood. And at the intersection, there's no traffic lights. It's just another street that comes. And we were racing this each other. And I didn't want to lose the race. So I thought, I'm coming up to the intersection. What do you do? Do you slow down? No way. You speed up. Because you don't want to lose. You know, and I think back to times like that, and I zoom right across. As if a car had been coming dead instantly. Crazy. Why? I wasn't. I was, I was, I was wanting something more. And I wasn't getting it. You know, what is it that we do that really reflects something deeper inside? What are the th things that we focus on to try and give us joy and satisfaction? For, for people at ODA, there's lots of pain. This guy who I mentioned, his history is horrendous. Horrendous. He grew up in West London. Up to about seven or eight years old, his family couldn't cope because he was getting into issues. His mom and dad split up. His mom was a drug addict. His sister was uh, um, causing problems. He then put in a home. He was, he, he was so badly behaved at primary school, he got put into a home and lived in a home for about 13 years. That home was one of the homes on the news in the recent years who had consistent child abuse. And he was abused for about 13 years. You know, when you go through that 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 24, 15, 17, 18, you, you get abused regularly, sexually abused. It does something to you, massively. No wonder he's taking her in. No wonder. You know, there's stuff that people can't deal with that is horrendous. For many of us, though, it might not be that extreme. But the issue, I think, here in this passage is that what we see in this first point, in this first part, is there's a sickness. But let's look a bit deeper. Let's not try to cure the symptoms, but let's be aware of our limitations. This is where Jesus enters the scene. Look at it up in verse 6. Second point, the treatment. First point, if you're taking notes, is the sickness. The second point is the treatment. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of them. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of most high God? God, swear to God that you won't torture me for this man. For Jesus said to him, come out of this man, you evil spirit. Then Jesus asked him, what is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. They gave the permission, he gave them the permission, and the evil spirits came out and went into the pigs. They heard about 2,000 in number rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. The treatment. So this man, full of demons, runs up to Jesus as he comes out of the boat he falls on his knees in front of him, in homage, not in worship. And he addresses him as Jesus, son of the most high God. That phrase is used numerous times throughout the Old Testament by pagan people about the, king of, the, the God of Israel. Mentioned in Daniel, mentioned in several other places. This demon knew exactly who Jesus was. You know, in James chapter 2, it says that even the demons believe. 
Even the demons, they know exactly who Jesus is. They're not confused. Jesus has this interesting dialogue with this man or with the demons. We don't even know who is in control. Is he speaking to the man or is he speaking to the demons and the man? Then there's elements of both in the passage. What do you want with me, Jesus? What do you want with me? And then Jesus says, what's your name? And he says, Legion. You know, for that context, this was an occupied nation where the Roman Empire was completely in control. And he gives the name Legion because anyone there would have known what a Roman Legion was. And it's 6,000 men. Why does he say that? To try to give us a sense of it's a lot. (laughs) It's a lot. A lot of damage, a lot of destruction, a lot of problems. There's no way human intervention can do anything about this. Jesus says to him, the, the, the demons beg Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. Now, a lot of people speculate, why did Jesus allow this to happen? Why did Jesus negotiate with the demons? You know, frankly, we don't really know. But one thing we do know He did allow it, and these pigs, 2,000 number, rush down the slope and they die. What does it tell us? That Jesus has power to deal with demons. (laughs) He has power. Power that we have no knowledge of. Power that's beyond the natural. Power that is supernatural. Power that is so infective that 2,000 beasts are killed as a result. And all these demons were in this one man. It shows us very graphically the level of destructive power in this one man. Jesus has the power to do that. No problem. Easy. Jesus is the treatment. You know, I sat down uh, a few weeks ago with, a lot of the, with, a, with a, about eight or nine of the guys in our treatments. And these are all guys in recovery between few days into the program through to five and six months into the program, or four and a half, five months into the program. And I said, look guys, I don't know if often get with them. The therapy manager was away for the day on a train, or was ill actually, and I, I stepped in and I said, I do a group. So um, I said, tell me, what is it about this place? Or, you know, what is it about ODAT that helps you to deal with your addiction? And we had a bit of a discussion, lasting about half an hour, Oh, actually, more than that, but an hour. And out of that discussion, I learned some very interesting things. One point that they said was addiction for one, two or three of the guys was around about accepting that he was powerless. But the, there was a God bigger than him who was powerful. And this guy's not a Christian. You know, in Alcoholics Anonymous, um, a lot of our program is based on the principles of the 12 steps in AA. But step number one in AA is we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. Step two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. To sanity. A power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Then, step three, 
made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understand him. Now here you have three fundamental steps in the first three steps of AA. And these guys have all been through these three steps. They're not Christians. They don't profess to be Christians. But they are willing to take on board the principles of there being a God. This guy said to me, uh, this guy, the guy who graduated on Thursday was in that group. And he said, you know what helped him? Now here's a guy who's 28 years old. From the age of about 17 and a bit, he'd been drinking uncontrollably with the largest period of sobriety in the last 10 years was 10 days. Wow. 10 days. So he comes into our program and he's like, I don't know how I'm going to do this. I have never been clean of alcohol for more. In fact, he said he got to 12 maybe once. But it was just, and every day with him, it's, ah, I can't do this. Ah, and he's gritting his teeth and he's anxious. Ah. Ten days. He graduated on Thursday, seven months clean. Wow. One thing he said was, what is it? I, every morning I get up and I pray to the God as I understand him. I can't do this, God. Help me. Help me. Help me. Supernatural power. You know, whether or not we believe in God or not, if, or whether or not we understand the God of the Bible, rather, there is a God. And these guys, even though they don't understand the scriptures, believe in a higher power. They've come to accept that they're powerless. This demon-possessed man was powerless to change. The society around him was powerless to change him. Jesus comes on the scene, and he's powerful. You know, in this guy's life, who graduated this week, he recognized that he was powerless, but that he called on a God that he doesn't even know that well, and he had received power. Another thing that they brought up in the group was the importance of peer-to-peer -peer relationships, the importance of community. A community which enables them to express the truth about how they feel without fear of judgment. The power of community. I'm reading a book by Town and Cl Cloud and Townsend at the moment called How People Grow. And one of the things they say in the book is that, yes, we, a lot of us understand the vertical relationship that we have with God. A lot of us understand the importance of loving one another as we love ourselves. But sometimes you don't understand the connection between loving each other and loving God. And what he meant was this. You know, in the Christian fellowship, we all have an element of God's spirit in us. As we come together, we each and every one of us more clearly as a group represent a little portion of God that the other person doesn't have. And therefore, together as a group, we more clearly present God to each other and to the world around us. So you have this vertical relationship with God. We have this pair-to-pair -pair relationship with each other. But when we mix the two together in the church... What we have is we see God in a way in each other which we can't see by our vertical connection. How are we doing with these small groups? How are you doing with your discipling relationships? How are you doing with groups of three or four or more? You know, connecting and being together to see God in each other, to point out things that God wants you to show each other and that you can show one another. Because it's powerful and it works in AA without the Bible. So why is that true? Because it's true whether or not it's in the Bible or not. Because the Bible is truth, and it is a source of truth. 
But whether or not you know where the truth comes from and you just exercise it, it's still true. It's true however you get there. The other thing they said was the power of service. Not just any service, but service without the necessity for recognition. I thought, whoa, are you saying? And I thought, so you're talking about what helps addiction? Some kind of connection with God, open and honest relationships, and serving one another unconditionally, and that brings about transformation. I was like, that sounds like Christianity to me. <laughs> you know, there's a power that God gives us through his word that can help treat anything. Jesus here in this passage shows that he has the power to do anything. And the level of destruction was enormous. And yet the level of construction was huge. Let's pick up again in verse 13. Sorry, in verse uh, 14. Those tending the pigs ran off. <laughs> and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what, they, what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. When the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. You know, these people begged Jesus. Just as the demons begged Jesus. Jesus answers the demons, as you might want to say, prayer. Okay, go in the pigs. These people, they're begging Jesus, leave, get out. Can't handle it. What does this tell us? Can you, I mean, can you imagine? I mean, can you actually imagine that your livelihood is, is I mean, 2,000 pigs is a lot of pigs, right? It's a lot of pigs. There's a lot of bacon there. Um, and, you know, this would have been the, the, the Gentile part of, of that area. This is a lot of people's livelihoods. This is no, you know, Jesus didn't do this to, to put them out of business, but he did it for his own reason to show them, I think, that was the level of the problem. But also that he values human relationships with him and the values a soul more than anything else. And it reminds you of John chapter, oh no, sorry, Luke 9, 25, where Jesus says, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self? That means for Jesus, one soul is more important than all the money in the world or even the whole world itself. So 2,000 pigs in comparison to the world is, is bad. It's not even a reflection of the whole world. And yet, they were holding on to this, this value. And they were scared. They were absolutely scared. Their livelihoods are just being trashed. And yet, Jesus is there, allowing it. And this man is there, no longer naked, dressed, and in his right mind. You know, when you see transformation, it can be a very scary thing. When you see people go from, you know, in a, in a lot of, in some situations, um, you know, of, of, of dysfunctional relationships, the 
the way in which people develop and cope with those dysfunctional relationships actually gives them a certain degree of security. I mean, these people had tried to contain the man. These people had put guards around him. Maybe they really did start out by caring for the man. And they thought, man, this guy's in our community. We're going to stop him because he's doing destructive things to himself and to others. And yet, there he was, we don't know how long for, in the tombs, cutting himself, all kinds of destruction. But they were living with that relationship. And there was a kind of a balance in the relationship. And when they see him dressed in his right mind, it's like, whoa! They weren't comfortable with the way in which relationship changed. You know, when I was becoming a Christian, my parents, well, I could go back a few years. My two brothers became Christians about three years before I did. And I was, my mom and dad and I were the, the non-Christians in the family looking at the crazy children and going, they'll just pass through it. It's just a phase. And then I came to London. I studied the Bible and I, and I, was on that cusp of making a decision. And I went back up to Manchester, and I sat in my dad and said, I'm thinking of becoming a Christian. He was like, what? what? Are you joining the same bunch of crazy people that, you know, Bran and Philip are? And I said, Dad, it's not about joining those crazy people. It's about what the Bible teaches. But he was comfortable with my relationship with him, being a non-Christian. I was sleeping around. I was getting drunk. I was just pursuing selfish ambition. I was just a man of the world. Yet my parents were comfortable with that. Because my mom knew. I was, I was in a church choir. And I used to go and spend the night with girls in the choir. And go to church next morning. My mom brought it up with me. I said, why? My mom wasn't... My mom was more important... <laughs> I love my mom. I really do love my mom. But she was more distressed, I think, about the fact of the choice of the girl I made. That's the impression I got. Maybe that was not what she was communicating. But what I got from it was, why are you hanging out with that girl? rather than, why are you immoral? <laughs> you know, we can have relationships which we're comfortable with dysfunction, sinfully, but when we make changes and get to be more aligned, as this man was dressed and in his right mind, it makes people around us scary. You know, are we afraid when people change and become committed to Christianity? Are we afraid when people make changes that so shock us or, or really, maybe even not becoming a Christian, but you know, you're reinvestigating the scriptures and getting conviction that, you know what, I am not really doing this. I need to step up. I need to step up to the plate and live a life that is an imitation of Jesus Christ. Does it scare people around you? Think, whoa. You know, we looked at Mulligan in that video. Why do we like Mulligan? Because he's full on. Because he's, he's heart and soul what... He is, and he's committed to Christ. I love his heart. I love his spirit. I love seeing Danny putting his heart out for Jesus, song leading. You know, Christianity is about being transformed in our right mind and dressed with the clothing of Christ. You know, we're clothed with Christ. The blood of Jesus is what God sees. These people's prayer, let's pick it up, um, was answered. Let's pick it up in verse 18. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. You know, Jesus 
listens to the people when they say to him, please go. So what does he do? He answers their prayer. He answers their request. And he says, okay, you want me to go? I'm going. And he comes, goes in the boat and he goes to leave. Meanwhile, the guy who is healed says, no, I want to stay with you. Can I come with you? Jesus says, no. You need to go home and tell your family what the Lord has done for you. And it's a very interesting thing. Jesus didn't answer his prayer. And yet Jesus answered the prayer of the people to leave. What do we really want? You know, Jesus said to the man, go home. Why? Because he was probably a Gentile man. And Jesus was happy for him to spread the good news because he wasn't in Israel. You know, when Jesus was in Israel, every time he did a miracle, he said, shh, don't tell anyone, don't tell anyone, because, you know, my time is yet to come. He's getting a bit too out of control. You know, um, people are going to come and try and kill me. He told this guy, go and tell everyone. Why? Because that was not part of Israel. That was on the other side of the Jordan. But he had a mission to do. He had a calling to answer. He had to go and tell his family. And yet, he must have felt so much like, oh my, God isn't answering my prayer. God isn't doing what I want him to do. You know, have you ever felt like that? That you ask God for something and he says, no, I don't want to do, you to do this. You cry out to, you know, the same word, begged, in what we translate, the same word that the demons used, they begged. The same word. And he answered their prayer he didn't answer the man's. Why? You know, God's way is better than our way. You know, a lot of times we ask and we don't receive in the way in which we want it. But we know every time we ask, God does answer. As we know, God can say no, he can say yes, or not yet. <laughs> Probably three, three responses. But God always answers prayers. Always. But sometimes not the way we want. So we looked at four types of situations. There's four characters in this story. There's the man who's demon-possessed. There's Jesus. There are the demons. And then there are the people of the region. Who do you most identify with in the story? Do you identify with Jesus? Yes, I'm like him. No, that's not how I think. Do you identify with the demons? I'm like, no, I don't want to be a demon. So that leaves us with two possibilities. Do we identify with the man or we do identify with the people? You know, when we look at the people, their prayer was, God, leave us. Is that how you feel today? Are you saying to God, I don't want to do this? You know, I look at this and I think, I wouldn't say that. Of course I wouldn't. I want to be, but I have to think about, really, Bruce? You know, I'm reminded of Luke 5, when, when Peter was in the boat, and he sees Jesus almost swamp the boat with a catch of fish that he had never seen before. And he says, go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. You know, sometimes we're scared and afraid, and we don't want Jesus you don't want him sitting right next to you telling him, go and share your faith with that person on the other side of the train carriage. 
I've said that. No, no, God, I'm too busy. I don't say, I, I, I say, that's effectively saying, I'm too afraid, I don't want you, Jesus. Or, you know, sometimes we, we think, I've just had an argument with my wife, and I know I should be humble, but no, no, not yet. I don't want you, Jesus. Or sometimes it's, I know I should obey that scripture, which it says that, you know, I need to be bold and courageous and not worry about what people say about me. But I don't want that. No, Jesus. Who are you like? You know, it's hard to change. And change can be very fearful, you know. Change is sometimes so fearful that we get paralyzed. I, as I said earlier, I, I didn't want to be in London. I was in London as a disciple in 1989, and I was so excited to be in the mission team to Manchester because I could leave London. <laughs> I'm not kidding you. I, I, I didn't like the place. Um, now, I know you might say, we're not in London, we're Watford. But, <laughs> maybe, you know... The truth is, I wanted to be in Manchester because I love the city and I love the area. So about three years ago, we started having issues where Maggie and I, my wife, were leading the church in Manchester and we really felt like we needed more training. We, we were not doing a good job. The church grew quite quickly for the first couple of years we were in the full-time ministry and then it stagnated and it, and it really was difficult. And I said, like, God, we're not making a difference. We need help. And so we had worked things out with the leadership here in London to swap with another couple, that they would come to Manchester and we'd come to London for more training. And at the last minute, it didn't work out the way we wanted. And it meant that we were committed to coming to London, but there was no job. And I was like, what? This is not in the plan. And I remember we, as a couple, Maggie really needed to be here. And I felt that, no, we can, we can work it out after two years of it not really happening. And I remember going out into the field behind my house and saying, God, what are you doing? Why am I, why am I in this position? I'm 55 years old and you want me to leave Manchester to go to London, I don't have a job, I don't have a house, my children don't have schools, my wife doesn't have a job. This is not in the plan. And yet it became very clear more that we needed to do something different. So we thought, okay, you know what, we're committed to coming down here. So Maggie and I said, God, we have one day to find a place to live so that we can get an address, so we can apply to some schools, and so that we can get the kids into schools, because they're in year nine and they had to do their options by January, this was October and actually the 31st of October, Halloween. Um, and uh, we came down to, 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 to London and we had six places to look at. Five of them are absolutely incredibly expensive and like something out of, I don't know, the jungle. And, and one of them was a, a real house we could live in. And we said, but it was way, way above our price bracket. I said, great God, this guy's got to reduce his rent. I don't know how. I mean, he prayed about it and we went after it and the guy reduced his rent to what we could afford. And we got an address. So the next day, we were knocking on schools. No, we've got an address. Can we come to your school? And no, no. Da, da. And we found a school. And then after that, I said, don't have a job. 
have to come to London. Maggie um, and prayed, okay, God, I don't even know what I want to do. I'm going to leave Manchester. Bring me a job that I don't even have to apply for. Just bring it to me. I was like, what? Uh, and then as we set off for London, she got a phone call from Paul Rowden and said, a job's come up to be the administrator. Do you want it? What does it involve? It involves spreadsheets and numbers. And Maggie, Maggie can do numbers, but she's not really a numbers person. She said, if that's what I prayed about, therefore I need to step up and do it. And God gave her a job before we'd even moved. I came down to, to I, was, I was in London, and then I said, I don't even know what I want to do. I haven't got a living. How am I going to afford to pay the rent? How am I going to afford? And we have a house in Manchester we've just bought, which we have now to rent out. And God had to work out all that, rent our house in Manchester, find a place in London, in four weeks. And then I get offered a job at Hope Worldwide. Just enough money to pay the rent, just enough money to, and my kids come to school, and they prayed, we prayed, God help us to move into schools where Christians are there. So where we find a house is right in the middle of a boys' school for my son and a girls' school for my girls. And what do you find? The girls' school, has a Christian, Sophia Louis. She's there. My son goes to school where her twin brother, Jordan Louis, is. And let King, oh my gosh. God answering prayer after prayer. Within six months, my daughter, Lily, got baptized on the 19th of July. Within five weeks after that, my daughter, Erica, got baptized on the 25th of July. And then three, four weeks ago, my son was baptized on the 30th of April. And I asked them, what helped you to become a Christian? And they say, unreservedly, we saw your faith. We saw your willingness to step out and be faithful. And we see what God has done with our lives. And I think, oh my goodness, if I hadn't made that step of faith, what would have happened to my family? You know, God is asking us to be like the man who was in demon possession. He's asking us to take a step of faith and go out on a mission field to be ambassadors for him about the good news that God has done in your life. To go back to your friends and families and communities and say, God is amazing. Let me tell you where my life was at. And let me tell you what it has become. You know, who are we today in the story? Are we a demon? No. Are we Jesus? No. Are we the people who are saying, go away from me? I hope no. But I hope we can become like that man who was possessed but became an ambassador for Jesus. Thank you.